When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a special holiday episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. Can, can we even put a number on this one? It's kind of like 11 d 12 z Yeah, it's like 11 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's really out there. <laughs> so uh, we had this idea in the last month or two. We see how many of you have enjoyed episode, what was episode number two. Our first big episode, real episode, was A Case for the Beatles. I don't know. I don't know. When did we get the idea that it might be fun to reimagine it, as I said? Like in the last three or four weeks, we were talking about if we were going to record or, re- or do something. That for, we have, for Christmas Yeah, week. if we were going to record one or if we were going to uh, just re-release one in some form or another. Right around that time, I had gone back and listened to The Case for the Beatles. And when I listened to it, I realized that we were using zero musical accompaniment, which is part of what we've been doing. Doing mm-hmm. these last few months, our especially value. our production value. What's that old Alan Funt line? We thought it'd be fun if we went back and reimagined it and produced it up a little bit and presented you with a case for the Beatles as our holiday gift to the yeah. audience that it's really blown us away this year in yeah. all parts of the globe. Uh, when it started with just a few handful of people in the Philadelphia area and some of our friends from out of town. It's kind of trippy that it's spread everywhere. Uh, I know. The way it has. I know when we had started doing this, we didn't really have any idea how it would grow or even if it would grow. Right. We just thought, let's do some episodes. We had some great ideas. We see where we go and do it for a year and see where we're at and we're pretty excited about what the new year is going to bring us and uh we're sponsored by crook and i brewery in hapro and at They've the end of wonderful. today's podcast we will tell you about a very special fun way to wrap up our first year with crooked eye uh but first you want to do the honors no go ahead you're a beatles dude go ahead it's a case for the beatles reimagined on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. This is going to be a fun ride. Buckle up. Welcome to the second episode of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. I'm Ray, the Doc Koob. I'm Marcus, in the darkest. And uh, today, our second episode, we mentioned uh, the Beatles a couple times in our initial episode. Um, I have this theory, Marcus, and it has to do with the Beatles being the turning point in rock and roll as, as, as it developed... Uh, into what it became in the 70s and 80s and 90s and a little bit beyond before Napster nipped it in the bud. But in my estimation, where things were before they came along and how they left them, even while the Beatles were still in their active years, Mm -hmm. they changed the way so much happened, um, starting with the song selection and the control over song selection uh, on their albums. So they would write and record a bunch of songs and be like, okay, we want this one, we want that one, we don't want this one. 
And if the label said, well, we want this one, and they said, we don't want this one, they would win because they had that control. That's the way it was with all artists. The, the producer and the label had a lot of say, oh, yeah. if not total control over these things, unless it didn't turn out well. But, but it's, I, I want to talk a little bit more. I want to just want to lay my case out for you, for everybody out there uh, as well. And um, feel free to email us uh, with your thoughts at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com or find us on Facebook and add your comments to this week's link to the episode at Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on Facebook. So I think the Beatles did a lot to change the way that artists were able to be influencing what was mm-hmm. going to be on their records. Um, they also um, took the move towards all originals on their records, not allowing for the label or producer input on selections to be recorded. Basically, like, so you're talking about the songwriting teams that were very big in the 50s and 60s and writing right. for a lot of the Motown get... artists and the Stack artists, and that's an episode and in the itself. Brill building, even the Brill Building people. So I want to Is that the Goffin King yeah, people and all of that there, group? Sure. Was, now, was Neil Diamond part of that group, he I think? And that? James sure. Taylor was part of that group, I, I think. So well, he wrote that. songs with Carol King, so. But James Taylor got to be James Taylor because of the Beatles, not only in an indirect way, but directly. If what? You, yeah, we'll talk okay, about that. Okay, good. That's something we could talk about at some point. So they moved people towards uh, doing all originals on their albums. Um, the British Invasion, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you with the details that, that I know, um, was underway just before the Beatles hit. And uh, they led the first wave, obviously, onto the shores. But they also changed a lot of things. Uh, they changed so much about the uh, concerts, how concerts were run. And, and they, they, they took it to a whole different level. Uh, the nature of touring. Um, uh, they helped to propel the next British wave of the British invasion. And then they created a legacy. They took control of so many things. Album formatting and, and uh, uh, versions of the albums and how they would be released internationally. They were there as production style and capabilities and recording process went from slaving four track units to eight, then 16 and 24. There's things like uh, the style influence. It was the first time that uh, somebody really, other than maybe Elvis, had that much style influence. Um, uh, writing and recording their own, taking partnership in the studio, taking partnership in their music and ownership of their music, creating their own company to take control of publishing and image rights and starting their own label and creating their own legacy. So they did all these things from the moment they exploded in February of 64 uh, until the end. Um, so because a few years before that, Buddy Holly was the first to produce his own album. So they basically took what Buddy Holly did and took it to the next level of greatness and of artist ownership. Because they got signed into the EMI family and the, the way that the, it was done very British and there was always a producer and he was always in charge because he's the one that had to report to the bigwigs. I, I start by looking at their influences. Elvis, you know, you don't have to look far into the, into the Beatles persona to find Elvis. Buddy Holly. Little Richard. Carl Perkins. These guys, I think, were the primary direct influences on. You don't have to, you don't have to go far to find Paul McCartney uh, or John Lennon doing that Little Richard scream. George was always digging into the the Carl Perkins riff box, you know. Yeah. But then I looked at the song selection thing. Now think about this. We we were talking about this while we were setting up. Going back to the Hamburg days, where they played the Star Club, the band had to play a ton of music each night. 
So they developed not only their own songs, it gave them a chance to write and learn and play that, but it also, they had a repertoire to augment what they were writing and also to be entertaining, because if you weren't entertaining there, I understand you didn't last real long yeah. in Hamburg in those days. But out of that, a lot of the covers made it to their albums. Uh, the first British record, they did a song that you wouldn't hear at the end of the Beatles called Anna, Go to Him. Arthur Alexander was the writer. Who's that? Anna, you come on ask me, girl, to set you free, girl. You say he <laughs> I, I, I didn't get that far. We mentioned Brill Building. You mentioned Goff and King. Uh, Chains was on that first record. Uh, they covered Bacharach and David and Baby It's You, which was a Sherelle song. That's crazy. Yeah, well, these these this is where the process was. Then. Okay. These were songs that uh, maybe they played. Um, and, of course, Twist and Shout. they made their own they did that with a number of songs written by Phil Medley and Burt Russell on the second record which was with the Beatles yeah. which was the cover of Meet the Beatles here in the States I think mm -hmm. they did Till There Was You which was a Meredith Wilson song written for the Music Man musical which was a big hit in the late 50s mm -hmm. Uh, another Marvel, a Marvelettes hit, uh, Please, Please, Mr. Postman, You Really Got a Hold on Me, written by Smokey Robinson. They were feeling the pressure to compete with those early great Motown songs. And money came from that. Barry Gordy, writing team, uh, originally uh, recorded by Barrett Strong. The best things in life are free. And so these things continued. Then... I submit to the jury, Marcus. Yes. In 1964, they did their first all-original album for the Hard Day's Night soundtrack and movie. The next song we'd like to sing. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I But the covers came back for a while because they hadn't yet covered Chuck Berry or uh, Lieber and Stoller who were giant songwriters of the 50s and early 60s. Carl Perkins, two times. I mean, rock and roll music, Kansas City. You know, they covered Honey Don't and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby. Act Naturally, which was a hit for Buck Owens, was a perfect fit for Ringo. And they started to want to get Ringo into the recording mix a little bit. You know, everybody liked them so much. But the trend was away from cover songs on 1965's Rubber Soul. 1966 Revolver, and the American release in 66 of Yesterday and Today. It was starting to be more and more uh, about their songs. And they forced, I think, more than anything, they forced that as an issue with Martin first and then with the uh, EMI Brass. But their songs were also, that they were writing, were also cutting edge because they were writing about the simplicity of courting for teenagers, like I want to hold your hand. I mean, just like little simple things that were everyday life, and they were telling these magnificent stories of teenagers and early 20-year-olds trying to figure life out. That is it in a nutshell, right there. It's so simple. I want to hold your hand, right? Yeah. But they were telling that story. They were saying that in a way that was different from Pat Boone. Yes. They made um, it fun. And... The, the pop the pop singers of the 50s they weren't making you jump up in the aisles and pee your pants no and Elvis was Elvis was and there's a thread 
You know, there's a thread. You can't really make a family tree connection between Elvis and the Beatles other than... Influence. In, in the same way that February 64, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan changed things for them. I want to hold your hand. 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 56 on the Ed Sullivan Show with Elvis changed things for him on a mammoth level because of how many people watched that show and what it did, not only for them, but for other artists. So that's part of my case of the Beatles being a turning point. Elvis turned it on, they turned it up, and in some ways, I'm sure Elvis at one point went, Jesus, boys, what are you doing? (laughs) Never thought I'd see that. (laughs) And the funny thing is, my mom saw Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show in 56. She did. And she remembers it. I think, if I'm not mistaken, they showed him above the waist only because he was shaking his hips so much and they could not have that on TV. Way too suggestive Uh for 1956. (laughs) Yes. and and even for later, a lot of those things uh, we we we'll, we could talk. We should talk about Ed Sullivan. Yeah, and the the, the light my fire, the doors, light my fire, oh, stones, all yep. Of it, so. Oh yeah. All right. Well, we were talking about the British invasion. Yeah. All right. I, I some things I've had to go back and refresh myself on. There was a thing called Mercy Beat. Now the Mercy River runs down to um, you know through through Liverpool to the sea. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, Mercy Beat was kind of England's answer to American rock and roll, which had become so popular over there, the 50s rock and roll. It combined some traditional jazz with modern pop sensibility. They called it Skiffle. And the Quarrymen, which was John Lennon and, and Paul McCartney's first band together, they played Skiffle. So ferry, cross the Mersey, cause this land's the place I love. And here I'll stay. It became called the Mercy Beat, and it was the launching point, I think, for the British invasion. Now, have you heard any of the skiffle music? Yeah, if you go back, uh, Lonnie Donegan. You ever hear Lonnie Donegan? I've heard the name. Uh, what's the song that does your chewing gum lose its flavor on, on the, the night post yes. over a bit in the bed that, post overnight? That's... That's kind of skiffle. Go back and listen to Jerry and the Pacemakers. All right. Well, it's the holidays, Marcus, and nothing says happy holidays like having a beer with a friend like our friends at Crooked Eye Brewery. We haven't had a holiday pint yet together since we've started the imbalanced history of rock and roll, and Crooked Eye is the perfect place to do it. Right in the heart of Hapro, you can stop by any night for all the fun that is Crooked Eye and the tasty brews. Well, they're the thing that'll keep you coming back. They have some damn good beers. We like them, and they keep adding these specialty beers here and there that they spike in with their regulars. And just in time for the holidays, here's the man himself, Paul Mulherin. Merry Christmas from Crooked Eye Brewery. We're happy to have everyone here in the podcast and uh, the support they're giving us. We just want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year from Crooked Eye Brewery. Serving the cure for what ails you since 2014. When you get a thirst that needs a great brew, make it Crooked Eye. Right here in the heart of Hatboro, a place to have a beer with friends. Happy holidays, and don't forget, the next time you need a pint, make it Crooked Eye. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, 
Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, just before the Beatles hit, British Invasion actually begins with an instrumental group called the Tornadoes gets on the U.S. charts. They were the first one to get number one on the U.S. charts from from uh, from England. Um, then there was a jazz musician in Kenny Ball. Uh, he hit the chart on 19, 1962 with Midnight in Moscow. So you're talking about a couple instrumental songs from England that kind of get things started. Interesting. An instrumental called Midnight in Moscow. Yeah, think about it. Now, these mm-hmm. records c- kind of gave hope to the newer artists that were all out there honing their craft in the UK and in Liverpool. One week after the Beatles entered the Hot 100 for the first time, a young lady named Dusty Springfield came along and became the next British act to hit the Hot 100, peaking at number 12 with I Only Want to Be With You. You remember that one? Yes. That was the beginning of it, with those with those couple instrumental records, and then the Beatles and Dusty Springfield, and all of a sudden people were talking about what was going on in England. The British invasion had begun, basically. They were coming across the ocean, and they were uh, taking over the airwaves with Jerry and the Pacemakers, Chad and Jeremy, Dave Clark Five, and others. And, and then there would be the next wave you yeah, know? was that like two years after the British invasion, about 66, 67? Well, because the like Beatles the hit King- in 64. It had already kind of started. It was, things were happening in, in over there in 62, 63, and then it kind of started to happen here. Beatles kicked the door wide open, and, and then that, that allowed people like, you know, the Animals and the Kinks and the Stones to come along, and their recording careers started, it's not, some of them in 63, 64. Yeah, the Kinks were early. Yeah, they were right in there so that they were ready as soon as there was a, the door was open to get airplay and get your record sold in America, those guys, the animals I mentioned, mm-hmm. I love a little story about the animals. Everybody was in suits. They all had the the hair the, the, the haircuts and stuff, mm-hmm. right? Everybody had their look. And, yeah. Uh, Eric Burden just didn't like it. He, they were a bunch of tough guys from Birmingham. They didn't want it. They they just wanted to get in there and do their thing. But they went along with it to get to get the attention and to get on television. And then you had the Hollies and the Who. They were doing what the Beatles were doing in 58, 59, 60 when the Beatles were doing. 
their thing, and then they jumped through. Mm. The Yardbirds and Zombies yeah. and more would follow in 65 and 66. Mm. And the people who were feeling it were the Pat Boones, uh, the American pop stars. The Family the, Values uh, pop stars. Some of them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the people who fit that category now. But also people like the Beach Boys yeah. or Jan and Dean. They were feeling it? Yeah, they felt it initially, but the Beach Boys proved to be evergreen. And, yes. you know, they would go on to do even greater things. Oh, pet sounds of, and, and stuff. Sure, things like that. But it would be a couple of years before they would uh, catch up, as some people would say, in, in, in like 65, 66, 67. Things started to happen. And we could talk about that sometime, too. The oh, reactions, yeah. I see some of it as a reaction to the British invasion in places like New York and San Francisco and L.A. and other places, too. But. Is that where we get bands like uh, the uh, Velvet Underground? Sure. They're coming right out of that. Yep. It's like, you but, want you want loud and vulgar? Come on. Yeah, we'll go. We'll here's, get loud, vulgar, and artsy. Here's our, yeah, here's New York for you, man. Yep. You know, so that I think that was part of it. The Beatles, as much impact as they had in their years, uh, 63 to, to 70, really 71, yeah. they made an impact. Uh, Brother Man, Andre, and I talk about it all the time, that nobody can ever equal what they changed. No. Uh, one of the things they changed, too, Marcus, and our jury of our peers listening on the podcast, Imbalance history of rock and roll uh, is the way that bands can develop a legacy how they're seen after their active days and how they can position themselves with uh, legacy releases public relations marketing Mm -hmm. and uh, I think they changed that I I think they changed the way albums are formatted and the way that they're put together Um, they help the force first I think with the artwork and the naming with Rubber Soul and Revolver the international look of the band's albums and then they helped to put the hammer down with Sgt. Pepper where the same version was distributed. It was the first time I think that had been done. And I don't know if it had ever been done before 1967 Wow! with any of the bands that were coming out because there were always other songs. Hey, we shipped this single over to Japan or to England and it, it kicked. So we're going to put it on the record and we're going to add that. And we're going to take that thing you weren't so crazy about anyway off. The, the, these yeah. things were done routinely by the labels and, uh, and project managers. So after that, they used their place in music yeah. and in the business to kind of force what became the new norm. Standard releases in all territories. They, they helped to force sales focus go from singles to albums. There were a lot of people involved in that. Bob Dylan, chief among them, who was, hey man, this is the record I made. Columbia put it out. And that's the way it worked for them in yeah. good steed for a long time. But not that many people were doing what they were doing and forcing the album and by 67 they achieved that goal uh, with Sgt. Pepper they helped with the emergence of various new forms of rock into the mid 60s progressive and psychedelic acid rock mm-hmm. hard rock even the early seeds of metal on things like uh, punk and yeah well, things the like rebellious monkey. of punk everybody's got be... something but to hide but me and my monkey is, yeah. has seeds in punk and in metal yeah. she's so heavy from Abbey mm-hmm. Road you know those things. Those things resonated with a bunch of guitar players who were just getting ready to make their mark, uh, and some of them already were. And in the case of like Tony Iommi and uh, Jimmy Page. Oh yeah, and they're. Oh, and it's funny that you mentioned Jimmy Page. I was reading an article about Zeppelin One, which is celebrating 50 years. Yeah. And George Harrison and Mick Jagger hated that album when they first heard it. They were like, "Eh, what is this noise? They probably reacted the same way the hair bands did when they first heard Nirvana. Because they knew the gig was up and there was something new coming, you know? (laughs) I didn't even think about it from that viewpoint, but it makes total sense. 
Wow, this is heavier and sexier than what we've been doing. How does he sing that high without squeezing his trousers? <laughs> <laughs> well, another thing the Beatles did, they started out in the same club atmosphere, small stage theaters, mm-hmm. all that stuff. They were one of the first artists that started to progress into small arenas and then outside to play in stadiums. And, and it would be a while. I think, you know, I mean, there were some big festivals but I think it was until Zeppelin started filling the outdoor stadiums that, that it been, it would be a while till someone had the ability to do that. Even at, what was it, $2 a ticket? Yeah, 2 $3 a ticket. Can you believe ticket prices uh-huh. from then? You see them online, yeah. right? Yeah, you ever yeah. see that? The, the old Beatles did $2. They yeah. saw them at... Uh, and that was a lot. That yeah, was a $2. lot of... Two bucks for a show. What? That's a whole podcast right there talking about concert ticket prices. Yep. I'll have to go find mine. I get them out of the old jewelry box. I know. I think my U2 at Red Rocks ticket was like $11 or something. $16 or something like that. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm Red Rocks welcome, please, from Dublin, Ireland, you Maybe $9. It was just ridiculously low. All right, now, there's another way the Beatles change things. Okay. I'm making my case here, aren't I? You are. When they started out, a lot of the tours were reviews. Everybody got 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Even mm-hmm. Buddy Holly, he was on mm-hmm. a review tour when he died. Yeah. They helped to make it clear headliner and opening act or two. They were the they were one of the first bands that said, I mean, if you opened for Elvis, weren't you thankful? Oh, yeah. If you opened for the Beatles, you were going, I'll be talking about this in 50 years. Yeah. you are. It My grandkids are going to love this story. <laughs> they were the first artist to play stadium-sized venues like yeah. they did. They were first artist to give a rooftop final appearance. <laughs> Which was also filmed, and we yep. can talk about that. And there's a book that just came out about that. That's right. You were just telling me yep. about that. I we're going we we to look into that, folks. We may have the person who wrote that book on to talk about all this. Now, the Beatles raised the bar incredibly high for everybody. Oh, without a doubt. Every time they put out a record, you know, all the other bands run into the record stores to get it. Mm-hmm. And in every aspect, they pushed their fellow British bands. They forced Americans to start changing the way that they were playing rock and roll. And they challenged everyone on both sides of the pond to do their best. Think about their production style influences, you know? Well, what they did with Sgt. Peppers is unbelievable. You also have um, the Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. That's another production masterpiece that's so bizarre and so different from anything else that they had done. And that's another example. That came out in 67, but it also is another example of different formats. Um, the Brits liked uh, EPs, right? Yes. So they would, Magical Mystery Tour was a double EP. So it was two seven-inch size pieces of vinyl, that would, but they had the small uh, album hole. Mm-hmm. But it was two, so it was like a little mini box, right? Mm-hmm. The U.S. never caught on to EPs. And uh, so what they did in the U.S. was they took those, the, the double EP, put it on one side, and put a bunch of singles that hadn't been on albums on the other side. There's your American Magical Mystery Tour. Yep. And that's the way things got done on, in a lot of cases. With with uh, Pepper was they 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 heard something bigger than they could fit live on the four tracks, so they slaved four track units together, like record this stuff here and then play it back onto one track while you record the other stuff live. So you had not your whole backing tracks, mm-hmm. but uh, like say the horns or the or mm-hmm. the strings and things like that. 
that they could do that. That led to the push for an 8-track board. God, I think I have an 8-track board in my kitchen right now. Uh, (laughs) Then 16 and 24 and, and on and on and on. That was in their time. They influenced style. You know, we talk about Bowie. And there's so many ways he had such a mass influence on style. But they were one of the first. Elvis did too. And there were 50s artists who dressed with style and all that. Little Richard was great with style. But when the Beatles came out with the the mop top haircuts, kids started getting in trouble at school because the hair was over their ears. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially in Catholic school, I'll tell you my experience. Get your knuckles cracked for that. So there was that. And and from the time they were the mop tops in suits to the bad boys in suits to the cool fashions, everybody doing their own thing of the 60s London uh, they created their own fashion sense. They took a different partnership approach. The last few records, I think you you see more of their personal touch uh, on the records, working in tandem with Martin, especially White Album Forward. They what? took control of their publishing and their image rights. Nobody was thinking about their image rights then. Started their own label, created a boutique, created all this stuff, signed artists and ran a label uh, and you know, manage their business, their rights, and ultimately their legacy in a way that no one had done before. Uh, certainly not a band uh, that broke up. Who had the business sense in that band to do that? Or, or did they all have that type of business sense and then they just collectively worked really well together to a point when they realized they had to split out and do their own thing, which is what happened. That much talent. Those guys all had to go their own way at one point. I think that uh, early on, Brian Epstein, their their manager who uh, who died in '67, mm-hmm. didn't live to see the the full fruition of the Beatles and what they would become. I think that he was a huge influence on all of that. And once they understood what their business was and they saw the size of the bank accounts. I think that individually they realized that they needed to become uh, businessmen. I think through the years, if you look at the numbers, I think McCartney did an amazing job of managing mm-hmm. his money and oh, his without income. a doubt, he, of course, Lenin he's had, too. He's, he, for, for the time John had, it's it is incredible uh, the, what they were what they all amassed, and what they're and what they're in in two of their cases, their estate continues to collect. It's um, the business part of it then went into uh, the hands of Alan Klein, who is a very disreputable, genuine. He has a, doesn't mm-hmm. have a great reputation. I don't want to say too much. I don't like to speak ill of the dead. Mm-hmm. But at that point, they knew enough about the business to know how to handle their business. And so they did. But I think the lasting influence there is they found out what it was they wanted to do. They figured it out. They made the playing field the way they wanted to. And then they did it. And like you said, how much more could they have done? We don't know. We never will. At that point in time, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, that's a turning point in rock and roll history. And I believe the Beatles had, while others had huge influences, other things would kick it into higher gears and take it places mm-hmm. that the Beatles probably weren't thinking of when they left Hamburg and started their their journey. It was that fulcrum point that I think really made the difference. And it opened so many people's minds and eyes to concepts that would later become standard. You know, those four years are huge. I've been reading a lot about the 60s, especially the last few months since we've been planning this podcast. And the results of the Beatles from 63 to 67 are 1968 and 1969, which are two of the greatest years ever of album releases in the history of rock and roll because of the art 
the art put into the music wouldn't have happened the way it was if it wasn't for the Beatles those four years before. That's why I think they had such a, you have to look at the influence they had. The music, the excitement, the reason for the influence, all good things to look at. Mm-hmm. But you got to you look at those elements that I just kind of laid out there, almost like a legal case. Back to their influences from the 50s through to where they were when they did that rooftop concert. I really want to get that book. We're going to get that book. I'm going to get that book and I'm going to read it. And we'll we'll interview the author, yep. And we'll get them on as well so that we can add to that. But yeah, there's so much more to talk about the Beatles. I mean, their impact as solo artists afterwards. Paul McCartney and the Wings, George Harrison and all the amazing things he did with the Wilburys and just the artists he worked with and Jeff Lynn and boom, boom, boom. You got it. But I submit to you, Judge Your Honor, Marcus (laughs) of the Darkest. (laughs) That the Beatles, as the fulcrum point in rock and roll's development, had, the case has been made. And we do invite all of you, by the way, to weigh in. You want to tell them where they can uh, email us and all that good stuff, Marcus? Imbalanced History at Gmail, or you can hit our Facebook page, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And, and if you like what you're hearing on our first two episodes, I would strongly, strongly suggest that you um, share it over and put please. it on your page and tell people to come to our uh, our little podcast about the rock and roll we love so much. Yes, and please participate in the conversation. This conversation will only get better because of people like yourself chiming in. And we look forward to hearing what you have to say and what you have to bring to the table because, again, we don't know everything. We don't know close to being near. We don't know close to everything or anything as far as that goes we, no we don't we, and you know what and if we're wrong we want to hear from you about absolutely. that absolutely we certainly want to say hey yeah you were talking about this and you didn't get that quite right please document and send it to us and so we can uh, make sure that we're getting this imbalanced thing uh, imbalanced yes we definitely need to balance the imbalance of rock and roll oh my <laughs> There it is, a case for the Beatles, reimagined on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's a magical mystery tour in itself. Well put, my friend, well put. Well, that's our holiday present to you guys, and we want to thank you for a great year. Brought to you by Crooked Eye, our friends in Hapro do the uh, honors of uh, sponsoring the podcast and making some of the great fresh brews Uh, that you're going to find anywhere, especially in the Philadelphia area. So we want to thank them, and we want to let you know that next week we will drop on New Year's Eve our special episode. It's a New Year's Eve party, Uh, basically. We'll do an episode of Five Favorites, uh, Five Favorite Party Tunes, and uh, we'll be live at the brewery, and it's going to be a whole lot of fun. If you haven't heard about it, it's too late. We've already done it. And uh, that'll be to bring in the new year and wrap up our first year as a baby podcast here on the Pantheon Podcast Network. And it's been a great year. Thank you again to everybody. I look forward to dropping my five favorite party songs. It'll be fun. It'll be a lot of fun because... 
I have no idea what I can't even fathom what you're going to pick as your top five at this point. And it'll be fun to hear what people who listen to the podcast who show who showed up at uh, Crooked Eye have to say as well. That's what it's all about. A little bit of fun at Crooked Eye to celebrate the new year. Imbalance style, shall we say. Imbalance style indeed. All right, so that's next week, and then we've got a lot to do in 2020. I'm getting my vision check so that my vision is 2020, and we're going to get focused on a whole full year of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Uh, Marcus, every week we sit down and uh, do these episodes, or every other week, depending upon how we're putting it together, whether it's at the Magic Bag Studios at your place or the uh, Soul Soul Kitchen Kitchen Studios Studios here. here. Uh, production at Dark Doc Media, and as of late on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I just love that we're doing this thing. This conversation that we've been having for the last 10 years continues, uh, and now only we've got a couple thousand people tuned in. And they're joining us in the conversation, which we thank you for joining us in the conversation. And I'm excited for the research ahead in 2020 with the subjects that we're going to be digging into. That's so exciting. Always digging and always learning. Nerd life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Ray Coob signing off. Uh, The big party's next week, and then I guess we'll catch people in the new year. Um, Marcus? Happy New Year to everybody out there. Party like rock stars. Party on, dude. Party on, but seriously, have a safe, happy, healthy new year. And we look forward to continuing the rock and roll conversation with you in 2020. So keep rocking and let's keep having fun. Here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Her Majesty, take one. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. My majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine, oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. Oh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.